So today uh, marks out the, the second week in this little series that we're doing here throughout the fall called Teach Us to Pray. And each week we're going to set out to kind of orient our minds and our hearts. Our hearts in the biblical imagination are the seat of our mind and our will and our intellect. You could uh, talk about your, like your heart as your person or your soul as your person. And so we just want to, it's a Bible-y way of saying we want to orient ourselves toward prayer. And specifically as Jesus is the one who teaches us to pray. And as natural as it may feel to uh, gather ourselves, gather as a community of followers of Jesus or people who are trying to follow Jesus and talk about prayer, like that may seem natural to do that. Like, oh, here I am in church talking about prayer. Yes, those things equate. But prayer is not always natural, is it? Uh, If you're like me, it can actually be some of the most unnatural things that we enter into. And prayer is kind of curious that way. I like how Pete Gregg, who's this uh, pastor from the UK, he started this little thing called 24-7 Prayer, which launched back in 1999, and it's been going nonstop, day and night prayer since then. So uh, that's older than some people in the room, which is crazy to think. He has this little book called How to Pray, a guide, or excuse me, a simple guide for normal people, which if you're just like, um, how do I pray? That's a great place. It, it's, it's quite uh, helpful, actually. And he, he has this, this, um, this explanation when you first get into the book, and it's, he's just saying, if you're human, then it's, you probably pray. And he, he highlights these various groups of people. So you could be like a big bearded, not hipster, but monk on top of a mountain, thousands of feet above the Aegean Sea, and you could be bowed on your knees before prayer, in prayer before God. You could be one of millions of Nigerians who just a few miles north of Lagos are like in huge prayer gatherings. I kid you not, if you like Google uh, millions of Nigerians gathered in prayer, you will see these really epic, and fortunately there's like English subtitles because um, the way that they speak English is really clear as they have a keen ear for it, but the subtitles are really helpful. And the faith and the vigor and the, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Millions of people gathered for prayer at a single time. Or you could be uh, like a number of churches in, this, in our own city where uh, people who are recovering addicts are gathered in church basements like praying for the needs of the day. See, to to pray is to be human, and to be human is to pray. And this is kind of what Greg puts in front of us. And and if you think about this, like prayer is this simple human desire to connect with something bigger than ourselves and all of life. And in some sense, that is what we're we're doing here, generally. uh, But we're also doing something more than that because we as followers of Jesus get to move beyond just a general orientation towards something bigger and we get to name that reality or rather we get to step in to a relationship like this interpersonal dynamic with a living God whose name is Jesus. And so our, our hope is less to like have a good definition of prayer in this whole little teaching series which I'm totally down with good definitions. They're scaffolding to help us build a praying life. But really, the posture of this time is that we, with the disciples of Jesus, as we covered this past week, might say, Lord, teach us to pray. I don't know, um, do you all like receive instruction pretty well? How, how often is it like when you have somebody who comes alongside you and says, here, this is how we do a thing. Do you actually go, wrong? Yeah, you're that, that's wrong. No, um, just me, I guess, is that one. Um, 
See, to that end, we actually want to invite Jesus and then not just like talk around that. We want to hear from Jesus himself. So that's why we're going to go to the praise, the prayers that Jesus prays. So if you do, if you have your Bible, you can flip or tap your way on over to the gospel according to Matthew. The text will be up here, but there's nothing like getting your fingers on that Bible itself. So Matthew 26 36 to 46. This is a scene in the garden. My guess is, is that you have, um, you've heard this text around Easter periodically. Um, but, but here's what's on the docket for today. A little bit of context, how weakness is actually a place of union with the Father, and then the Gethsemane prayer. Uh, back in May, we kind of riffed on this prayer as we are in the gospel according to Mark. I think we've taught on this prayer at another time in our Emotionally Healthy Church series, and now this is round three. Apparently, agony is a theme that uh, we revisit regularly. So um, if you're able, I know that you all are like super comfy right here, um, but if you're able, out of reverence for God's word, would you please stand with me as we read this? This is um, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46, and this is what we read. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. This Gethsemane, if you, if you know where this is, this is, you have the, the Mount of Olives, you have the Temple Mountain, in between is the Kidron Valley. This is a place, uh, what we would just call a park, it's an olive orchard, and the, the Gethsemane is the olive press where it's a fitting location for what's going to take place and what follows. So there's Jesus, and he says to his disciples that he's called to the place Gethsemane, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples. He found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? If you go King James on this, couldn't you tarry with me but for one hour? Verse 41, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went a second time and prayed, my father, and, and notice the nuance here. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, and here it is, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Um, you can have a seat. So this is uh, the gospel authors and really the biblical authors in general, they will just like pack, jam pack the biblical passages with a density of meaning. Some of this is due to the technology of their time. So they have like um, a scroll or a parchment or leather. So those things are expensive. It's not like they can just voice to text and then, I don't know, like do it via the cloud or something. So this is an expensive thing. And so we're not going to get through every single facet of this passage because this is a series on prayer, but we'll, we'll highlight a couple of things. But to, to get us into this, a little bit of context. Remember, context, how weakness is actually union with the Father, and then the Gethsemane prayer. So context. Um, 
A while back, I was employed at another church, and I was uh, kind of like a, a venue director, or what you just would call a campus pastor. And my, my boss, mentor, he's like the, he, he would preach regularly, and he would always, he had this thing where he would bring a coffee mug up with him onto the stage. So if you can picture the scene, there's like a, a bar top table, and then a, a stage, and he would have his coffee mug here, he would regularly go back, he would have his little mouse where he would click to the next slide, it's that kind of a, a space. And so he strolls up one Sunday morning to preach, and he has his uh, coffee mug as per usual. And yeah, this was a, a bit of a more memorable Sunday. That's why I'm sharing it with you is because um, in his hand is the buff Jesus mug. Yes, the buff Jesus mug. If the image is not like square in your mind already, let me just paint this picture for you. When I say buff Jesus, what I mean is Nordic Jesus. So long, blonde, flowing hair, bronze skin. And when I say buff, you know what I mean, right? Um, he has bulging muscles, a cutoff tank. Um, as you do, uh, a, a mom tattoo with a heart around it, and he's like flexing on the mug, right? Yes, it's, it's everything you want in Jesus on a mug. So I, I wish I could tell you what the sermon was about, but I can't because like buff Jesus was staring me down and everyone else the whole entire time. And the mug is so ridiculous that I think even today I, I kind of chuckle. Maybe it's like I'm, I'm laughing or else I'm like yelling in anger. Uh, because the not-so-subtle, like hyper-masculine Jesus, it reveals something. I think it's just beneath the surface that this buff Jesus is actually a Jesus we're a bit more comfortable with. At least in that context, I'm not presuming that upon you, but we saw this in the Lord's Prayer, like how we imagine God, who we imagine God to be will shape how we come to God. And so if, if God is a good father, that creates space for us to come to a father. He, if we ask him for bread, he's not going to give us a rock. He's actually going to give us bread. He's going to give us our desires. He's going to meet us in our needs. And think about that for a moment. Like if Matthew were interested in portraying Jesus as buff or a heroic figure for whom uh, Gethsemane was no thing, he's unflappable in the face of his, of his impending death, then Gethsemane is the wrong way to do it. Like that's exactly the wrong place for Matthew to bring us. Because this, this scene in Matthew 26, it actually tilts in the opposite direction than buff Jesus. And one scholar also, he notes that Jesus's opening words could be translated like this. I feel depressed and confused. I feel so bad I could die. Is this the Jesus that we want with us? The Jesus who confesses that he's literally on the brink of wanting death over life? Is this the Jesus that we want teaching us to pray for the next 10 weeks? <laughs> I think no and yes. So here's what I mean. I'll unpack the no and the yes. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes on the scene with some intensity. So what I mean is Jesus is confronting abusive powers. Jesus is casting out demons. Pretty aggressive. Uh, Jesus is even, he is, he's confounding the religious leaders with his wisdom. People will say, what is this teaching with authority? And you see, when that Jesus, the one who confounds the religious with his wisdom, when that Jesus asks you to follow him, it's like, yes, that's the guy. 
He has the credentials. He has the pedigree. He has the muscles. If, I don't, he doesn't have the muscles in the text, but I think you get the point because that invitation is not only compelling, that invitation is like prestigious. It invites you into this thing that at least on the surface is an invitation to power, which makes Jesus in Gethsemane like an affront at worst and confusing at best. Like, how is it that you can have the Jesus in Gethsemane and the Jesus in the beginning of the gospel according to Matthew or any of the gospels for that matter? Let's just consider Peter who's in our teaching text today. Let's, let's let Peter be a little case study for us as we're building this context, making our way for weakness as a place of union with the Father. So when a homeless rabbi in the first century comes to where Peter is and he calls him out, if you remember, Peter is a fisherman. He actually, it's quite a, 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 like a robust enterprise because there's other people he can just bail on it. So this is what Peter does. Jesus calls him. Peter leaves his vocation. He leaves his family. He leaves his livelihood to go with a homeless rabbi to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. This is as strange as it sounds, but apparently there's something compelling about this Jesus of Nazareth to Peter, such that he, he abandons those things and goes with him. And, and on the surface, this seems like devotion, yeah? You leave all of the stuff and you follow Jesus. A, a good move or thumbs up or thumbs down to this one, folks? I think I'm getting, I'm getting mixed messages. I don't know. So you guys know where, where the story goes. This is, you're reading your Bibles. This is encouraging. For the, the case of context, here we go. Um, let's just listen to this interaction between Peter and Jesus of Nazareth just a few chapters before our teaching text in Matthew 16. This is Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, and I'll tell you what that time is, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, excuse me, be killed and on the third day be raised to life. See, the, from that time is Jesus has just asked his disciples, so uh, what do people say about me? In our vernacular, maybe like, what's trending on Twitter about me? What, what's going on? And so they respond. They're like, oh, well, they're saying you're John the Baptist. Some are saying Elijah. He's like, okay, okay. So who do you say that I am? And Peter, presuming to speak on behalf, I don't know if he's presuming to speak on behalf of everybody, but Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. Now in the, in the Hebrew imagination, this is, means you're the anointed, you're, you're the anointed one, the one who would deliver the people of Israel from the hands of the oppressors. The kingdom of God would be established. You're that guy. And so Jesus says, yes. That wasn't given to you by man, but that's wisdom from heaven. Yes. Now shut up. Don't tell anybody. And I say that because that little preceding scene helps make sense of verse 22, because then in verse 22, Peter takes Jesus aside. He just took him aside and he began to rebuke him. The intensity of that verb is, is that Jesus continued to do this. And he's saying, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Because you know what a dead Messiah is? There's no Messiah at all. Jesus turned and one of my favorite lines in all the gospel, this is just like a fire from Jesus. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Not a good evangelistic method for your friends if you're trying to point them to Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple or my apprentice must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So if you don't catch this, Jesus is actually inviting all of his followers to the place of weakness and agony and shame on a cross, that that's actually the trajectory. And he wants there to be no confusion about it. And he kind of explains it here in verse 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Human concerns. But whatever loses their life for me will find it, the concerns of God. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And this is a place of tension. And this is what leads us to this place of weakness as union with God. See, basically to translate this whole interaction with Peter and Jesus, Peter wants the buff Jesus. And to that, Jesus rebuffs the buff Jesus. See what we did there? Um, And he says, get behind me, Satan. Karen, you like that. Come on now. I think like Peter, if we're honest, that that's kind of who we want. We want the Jesus who will flex on our enemies, who, to whom we can go, there's, there's safety. It's like, we relate to the psalmist, like, yes, like a like rock of ages cleft for me. Like, let me just hide myself right there. And, and yet there's a different dynamic going on here. I like how the Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, I like how he describes this tension that we feel. He says this, we have somehow thought that acknowledgement of negativity was somehow an act of unfaith. I don't know if you've ever experienced that where you're like, you're feeling a certain way about a certain thing. Maybe you're wired up to where you have these like internal critics who are critiquing your ins and outs of every day. And that's kind of what that feels like. I just can't bring that to God. And so, I, because that's, it's not just a negative thing. It's actually an act of unfaith. We never do it. And, in, and I could be wrong here, but I think in that space, what we've done is we've pushed apart the, the, the Jesus of Gethsemane and then the buff Jesus over here who's announcing the kingdom, who's demonstrating the kingdom in power And we want this Jesus over here, but we're not sure what to do with the Jesus who is crying out in agony. But what if agony, what if weakness is actually a place of power for us today? Just letting that linger, like what if that was true? Would that mean that we wouldn't have to posture ourselves? Would that mean that we could like actually amend all of our Instagram accounts? Maybe even just delete them because who gives a rip? I don't know. I'm just wondering aloud with you. But like what if agony, the weakness of Jesus is just a power that we don't yet recognize? By the way, that's the point I'm trying to make. So to make it not so subtle, that's the movement of this. That's actually where this prayer that we're getting to in a moment is gonna bring us. Because the thing is, the Jesus that confronted abusive powers, the Jesus who cast out oppressive forces, the Jesus who confounded the religious leaders with his wisdom, it is the same Jesus who we hear saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. See, we cannot bifurcate. We cannot push apart Jesus because he brings these things together. And what that means is that in all of our lives, we get to find a home in Jesus. I don't know if that resonates with you, but that has been a great place of peace and frustration in my life. 
I feel depressed and confused. I feel so bad I could die. If you know anyone who has been in this place, then what you, you know is that Jesus can be a place for them as well. Listen to how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus's prayers. This is uh, Hebrews 5, 7. And I, I can't remember the first time that this like registered in my mind. Maybe it was another preacher doing another thing another time, but like, this past week, this just like leapt off the page. During the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. I'm tracking. And this is where it gets a little peculiar. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. What happens after the garden? The, the cross. What happens on the cross? Jesus dies. So apparently Jesus is heard, but he's not answered. See, this is actually where the Jesus of Gethsemane draws us in because his prayers, his fervent cries, his tears, they give a place. That is, they make space for our own. And I think that we return here kind of thematically as a community because uh, at the beginning of August, August 1, to be frank, um, we had this, I, I just, I don't know what else to call it, like a grieving party. And we just said aloud the things that we've lost in this past season. And there were some things that I remember saying that I had not said aloud but to my wife, Jessica. There were places where I was holding bitterness against people in our community. And it was like this, I'm not saying that that was like, oh, it was so cathartic and I'm fully, no, it's like, oh my gosh, that stuff's real. See, I, I need the Gethsemane prayer and my guess is, is that you do too because even when we say a thing and all of a sudden it becomes really real, what do we do with it then? How do we continue to process this? How, how do we make sense of this? And I just, I, I just submit Jesus of Nazareth as the perhaps most compelling place. Now, I'm not saying that unless like you um, cry when you pray <laughs> or that you shout aloud. Some of this is temperament and personality. Maybe for you, it's like a place of quiet. Remember, Jesus is gonna like the next 10 weeks, it's Jesus praying. So trust me, there's gonna be a little bit of smattering for all of us because I think we all get to see ourselves in Jesus, male, female, whatever. Like this is a place where we can find our voice in prayer because remember, prayer is not about a technique. It's not. Prayer is where we actually get to meet with God as we are, not as we ought to be. That's a little C.S. Lewis for you right there. I'd love to just take that for myself. I didn't quote it, but that's, that's C.S. Lewis. Like we get to come to God in prayer as we are, not as we ought to be. Which means that prayer is a place that we can behold and be held by God. And I think that this prayer, the Gethsemane prayer, which we're gonna actually just work through here in a moment, and then we're gonna finish by practicing it because what if church was more than a place that you listen to a pseudo lecture? Come on now, that's gonna be legit. So this prayer though, the Gethsemane prayer, it's actually like this window into a pain that I think that we all encounter. Um, and by the way, I'm a wired up as a seven on the Enneagram. That's what I would identify with. Some people will disagree. However, um, this is a place where pain is a thing that we want to avoid. 
Like, generally speaking, it is a thing that, like, for the bulk of my life, like, when I reflect back on how I respond to pain, it's, I'm really good at, at uh, flipping on the optimism. So this is not my natural place. For some of you, it is. So for some of you, I'm actually going to say, don't do the Gethsemane prayer every day. <laughs> like, Yes, like, you live there. We need to move through, like, let's remember, this is a gift where we entrust ourselves to God, so that's gonna be a beautiful place for you. But for, if you're wired up where, like, you just want to turn on the optimism, perhaps this is a place that can be a gift for you. Like, where you can actually be held by God. (laughs) So this is the template. This is the rhythms. If you like notes, here you go. Uh, Jesus acknowledges his agony. Jesus acknowledges his desire. I don't think it's up. Oh, oh my gosh, Kate. Did I put that in? Congratulations. Uh, So Jesus acknowledges, I didn't think I did. He acknowledges his agony. He acknowledges his desire and he entrusts himself to God. So let's just work through that from the text and then we'll, we'll try it on and see how it feels. So Jesus acknowledging his agony. Um, To acknowledge that, to acknowledge your agony is to name it. Um, and I just, I submit, unless I have like an emotion wheel in front of me, I struggle <laughs> to actually give expression through the English language of what's happening on uh, the inside of my body, mind, heart, soul, all that stuff. But Jesus, he names his condition. And again, like some of us, like we're all up in our feelings. It's like a Drake song on repeat. And that's like, we, we don't know how to get out of that place. And for others of us, it's like we skate along the surface. And so this is an opportunity for us to get beneath the surface in the Gethsemane prayer. And so whether you are quite emotional or emotionally ignorant, uh, let Jesus's words invite you in here. This is how Jesus acknowledges his agony. Verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So there's that dynamic, which is critical. And I just, just note this though, um, who does Jesus acknowledge his agony with? Did you ever think about this? Then he said to them, who's the them? This is the disciples. This is Peter, James, and John, the, the sons of Zebedee. So Jesus acknowledged his agony in this place of trust. And now I 100% say yes, acknowledge whatever's going on on the inside. That is it's a good place to get that out before the living God. Like yes and amen to that. And for Jesus, he seeks out like a thick web of relational trust where he can actually bear his soul before others. Now, when we're going to practice this in a moment, we're, we're, um, I'm not going to ask you to like turn to your neighbor and do that because uh, social convention says that's not appropriate at this time. Um, so we're going to actually then like bring that to God, even just as a first place. But I just want us to notice, Jesus does this with people he trusts. I can't promise you uh, a lot, actually. Um, I can't even plan. But what I, I could say is that um, potentially this could be a place where you find places of trust. I would love if it was the type of place where that was true. And what I also know is true in this community and what's true in a city is that uh, people move, seasons of life change. And so we get to learn to release those things. And so I'd, I would just encourage you, if you do not have that place of trust, like perhaps this is a place where that, that could happen. Because apparently for Jesus, who is the one who shows us how to be truly human, that's needed. 
a thick web of relational trust. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually acknowledges his desire because that place of trust, it makes, play, it makes space for a place of prayer. And that place of prayer is then where Jesus acknowledges his desire. It's his movement. In verse 39, we read this. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And, and hold on right there. Um, on Wednesdays, I, I get to pray with uh, some other people in Des Moines. And um, but most of them are Pentecostal. Now, I didn't grow up in the church. And when I got plugged into a church, it was like an evangelical megachurch. So I didn't see people fall to the ground this is a thing people do. This is an acceptable posture of prayer. Now, and this is what I've been surprised by. Like, I, I know that there are sensational or like cases or some people make a lot of those things. Most of the time when I see this and I'm interacting with women and men of prayer in, for whom that's their tradition, and this is a posture they assume, they get aside. They don't make a spectacle of themselves. And it is this place of reverence. And oftentimes it's a place of like deep something. <laughs> I don't know what the something is. Sometimes it's pain. Sometimes it's joy. Other times I don't know. So I don't look because it's, I don't know what to do with it. I don't have a category yet, but I just want to say like, perhaps this is a thing. Like if you, if you're like me, most of life feels like a performance. So even this role is like, I, I, I have to, I'm apparently very sweaty because I'm like, oh no, what do they think? There's, there's a, th oh no, what are they, what are they, like, we just have to relinquish those things. And this posture of prayer that like actually says my body matters to God, it does something and it has for me. So I would just invite you into this, that you pray with your body. Maybe if it's just here, but you don't disconnect the things that you're thinking and the stuff that's happening in here. You actually draw them before. And that's a part of, I think, acknowledging our desires. My father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me. If it is possible, I know the last line that we all know, yet not as I will, but as you will, but don't, don't miss what Jesus does. Jesus is actually asking for another way than the cross. I, I mean, you've heard me say this before, and I think it bears repeating. He wants another way than the cross. And his confidence is that he can bring that to his father and perhaps it could change. Can prayer change stuff if you pray? A little bit of a caveat there. I think that we could do the same. I think that we could just lay our stuff before the Father and that he could receive it. And maybe he'll do something with it. Maybe he won't. I don't know how that stuff works. There's a lot of mystery in how the divine responds to humans in prayer. I don't get it yet. But rather than like confessing our shame around this desire that we have, like where our desire is on trial and it's guilty until proven innocent, like what if we just offered that stuff up to the Father? The next time we feel judgment like rising up in our heart toward a person because they vote a certain way and you assume because they have a thing on their face then they're all about a certain thing. What if judgment rises up in your heart and you just go, I want to hold that person in whatever, like, and you just give that to the Father. Or the next time you feel lust rising up in your body and you want to make that, that woman or that man an object of your personal satisfaction, you just release that to God. What if that was a rhythm that we established? And we just said, here you go. And then with our hands open, we finally entrusted ourselves to him. Because I don't know if we can actually entrust ourselves to God if we actually have not acknowledged our desires before him.
Notice this, this section, the succession of prayers. I'm, I'm just jumping from the first prayer. My, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. There's, there's a clear distinction there that Jesus has a will that is not the cross. Then he goes back to the disciples. Oh my gosh, you're sleeping. Can you not tarry one hour? I like the tarry version. Then can you not stay awake? And then he goes back to prayer. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from me, which the cup in this case is the cross, unless I drink it, and then notice this shift, may your will be done. And the third time, Jesus prays the same thing. It's as though each time there's this progressive softening to what the father would have, which which I don't know if this is here. By the way, this is, I'm like departing from the Bible and saying, this is just a thought I had. Um, what if Jesus in this space is actually like cultivating some awareness of what the Father's inviting him into? And the gospel author doesn't tell us, like um, some of my Pentecostal friends will say they get a download and I'm like, what's that mean? <laughs> but what if Jesus in that language is like getting a download from the Father is like, this is the place, this is the way the thing that you've prophesied about, the thing that you said you would go to Jerusalem, be given over into the hands of men, that you would suffer, die, and be raised on the, that is the way. Now, we don't know, but it seems as though there's clarity in Jesus' mind that when he's with the Father, that there is a willingness to move toward that. There's clarity that comes, a softening of his heart to receive the will of his Father who's good. See, one commentator, I, I read this past week, he, he was noting how we bypass our agony. And you'll see up here, um, I, don't, I think it's up here. Um, he has a bunch of words that talk about, I want to hold up Jesus as sacrificial and serene. And as I was thinking about it, I'm like, Jesus is not serene here. He's crying out in agony. So I, agree, I disagree with Chris Altrock, but he has this like epic line at the end. He says this, we cannot hear Jesus's statement of trust, your will be done, without first hearing his statement of lament, which is another way of saying, unless we acknowledge our desires before the Father, what is it to entrust ourselves into his will? When we bypass our pain and our agony and our desires, I think we're actually bypassing God's capacity to work with us in that stuff. So let's, uh, let's try this on, shall we? Um, this is just a simple invitation. There's no compulsion. There's no words to say aloud. This is just going to be quiet. Um, I'm going to invite us into this. And so in this place, um, like I said earlier, I'm not inviting you to turn to your neighbor or the person you came with and like bear these things. But whatever agony has beset you or frustration, you're like, I don't have a lot of agony. I'm upwardly mobile. I'm white. I'm a male. Like, I don't, I've got a lot. So whatever's been like a place of frustration, why don't you just acknowledge that before the Father? And now as you're there, just in the 
and the uncomfort or the, the uncomfortability of saying that thing that uh, in your mind that you've yet to disclose in a while or now what if the desires that are associated with that no need to edit just giving them over as they are like you know the ones that are opposed to, to God like bring those ones just bring those things to him and the confidence that he receives you right where you are as you are not as you ought to be And now in that place, entrust yourself to him to say, and maybe that today just looks like, what is your will? I want to go, I want to want to go that way. What is that? I'm here. Josh, if you and um, Ben and Matt would, would come up, I'm at, we're gonna do something a little bit different. Um, normally right here, we would say, this is our place. This is our place to move from this. If that prayer meant little to nothing to you and you want a place of remembering, like you need something more substantive than the bread and the cup is for you. But I just wanna invite you to stand. We, we will be um, observing the Lord's Supper, taking the bread and the cup here in a moment together. But what I wanna do is I, I want us to, to uh, sing together as this like response. There's something about singing collectively as a, as a people. And then in between, Josh, I'm just gonna come up and I'm gonna lead us through the bread and the cup. We're gonna sing another song and Karen is gonna send us out with a benediction. And so um, in these moments, whatever those things were that you were bringing, the, the, the frustration, perhaps the agony, whatever that may have been, over the course of these next words, perhaps these are a prayer that they make space for you. And then as we turn, I just want us to, to, to remember the body broken and the blood poured out for us, which is in, as we gather, that's kind of like the thing. So allow your hearts, um, if you've been closed off, if you're like, I can't stand the way this guy talks, that's fine, that's fine. Allow this time to not be about anything except for you coming to the Father. Jesus is inviting you. The Spirit is moving towards you. So let us come. Let us come, church.